Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, let's go to First um, Samuel chapter 17. Anybody know what that is without looking? It is. David and Goliath. Great job. Jacob gets extra points tonight. Oh, we were. That's true. David and Goliath. All right. Anybody know what it's like to face a, a spiritual battle, a battle of any kind? Okay. So, in, a, in other words, does anybody know what it's like to be a normal Christian and have to deal with battles at times? Um, I want you to think about this. Can you imagine doing something so significant that 3,000 years later, uh, it's still being talked about by people around the world? And it's so um, remarkable that this victory that has become the metaphor for little guys going up against big guys. Think about that. Wherever the Bible's preached and talked about, people know the story of David and Goliath. And this is true, uh, you know, the little guy versus the big guy in sports. It's David versus Goliath in in business, in court. Um, wherever we find ourselves, there's there's that metaphor coming out of this. And it's because uh, a teenager had the courage to stand up and let God use him in an amazing way. And uh, there's more to it than we may realize. This is more than just a teenage kid going up against some giant and beating him. There's a lot, there's a lot that stands behind this. And I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the background that leads up to this. And, um, and then we'll read our passage, okay? So what we know about uh, this story is that up to this point in Israel's history, the Philistines are oppressing Israel, and they have been since the judges so you remember the cycle of the judges was that God's people would, would uh, turn away from God. They forgot the Lord and what he'd done for Israel, and they followed after the Baals. And, and uh, the Bible says that God allowed oppressors to come in and oppress them for a period of the time. I think the first round was 40 years. The second round was 80 years. And then after a period of time, the people of God would call upon the Lord, and he would send a deliverer. And uh, that deliverer would come and rescue them and free their people, the people, and they would experience a time of reprieve. And then after a period of time, it seems that they fall back into the same cycle of worshiping false gods. And one of the nations that the Lord allowed to come in and to deal with Israel was a nation called the Philistines. And I don't have my um, screen up here tonight, but if you know where uh, the Mediterranean Sea is in relationship to Israel, maybe look in the back of your Bible if you need a map for this. Uh, there's a little strip um, down south where the Philistines lived right along the coastline. And they often would invade and they would come in and levy taxes against um, against God's people. And they would make life really hard. And after a period of time, they would uh, the people of God would cry out to the Lord and he would send deliverers against them. The Philistines, they had... They had better weapons, they had bigger warriors, and they taxed, and they were just a general nuisance. And so one of the, uh, one of the deliverers that God raised up, does anybody remember who God used to fight against the Philistines besides David and Saul? Gideon, okay, who else? Samson, okay. There's some guys early on in the book 
um, and I, it escapes me at the moment, maybe Ehud or um, one of those early guys. There's a couple of those early guys that fought against the Philistines. It wasn't always the same people, but uh, there was a constant fight against the Philistines, and God was delivering his people. And this is more than just the story of a history of warfare or a battle. It's much more than that. As usual in our lives, there's a lot more going on than the details of the moment. Have you noticed that? That there are some things that we're doing in life that they have significance beyond that moment. We don't always realize what it is, but but oftentimes there are there are battles that are being fought. Maybe if you're raising your kids, you're fighting some kind of battle there. You might be fighting the battle against stubbornness. Like uh, you're asserting as a parent that you are the parent and they are the child. You know, one thing that I was always, I don't have kids of my own, but one thing that uh, I always appreciate about my parents now, not when I was a kid, was that I knew that they would outlast me. As stubborn as I could be, I knew they would be even more stubborn in their dealing with me. And uh, I don't know why I was saying that, but I was saying there, there's a battle that often is fought. And, and sometimes um, those little battles, they don't seem significant until, and significant until much later on. And then that comes to fruition. And and this is one of those moments where it's not just a teenage kid against a giant. There's a lot more at stake that's taking place here, just as there often is in our lives. See, it's more than just David and Goliath. There's, there's more to it than just that the small guy wins. This is a battle between the promise of God and the threat to that promise. I don't know if you ever thought about David and Goliath like this, but if you haven't, I'd like you to take a moment here and think big picture. We want to step back away from this a little bit and understand that there's a promise that God has given to his people. What's the promise that he gave to his people? What is it? The land. That's the immediate promise here is that you will have a land. You're to go in and take possession of that land, and you're to do something else. Drive the, the possessors, the present possessors of the land, right? And so this is big stuff. This is probably 300 years have passed since they began to, uh, to pursue or conquest the promised land. And, and so now we've come to this moment, and Israel is living less than spectacularly, less than their, less than their potential in God. They're living with far less and isn't that sometimes true of our lives that we live with far less than, than what God's given us? And they've lived with that for some time. Some of it's been this cycle of idolatry. But also, there's another thing that we begin to see in the book of Judges is that when it becomes too difficult for God's people to drive out, they give up. They stop doing it. One of the interesting things to me about the book of Joshua and Judges is that God said, I'm giving you the land, Right? Would you all agree to that? I'm giving you the land. And he did give them land. But the first uh, city they conquered, which was Jericho, right? They marched around and the walls fell down. And then he said, okay, I've, I've get, given you entrance in the land and I'm giving you this land, but you got to also go fight for it. And he sent them out to go fight for it. And some of them fought well and they took possession of the territory that God had given them, and others didn't. Others gave up. Others took the easy way out. Some of them thought, we have our land. We're not going to worry about the neighboring tribes. So they didn't care about their brothers and sisters in God, and uh, they were satisfied with just what God had given them. And so what this did is this left 
Israel in a vulnerable place. The reason God was telling them drive out those nations was not because God's mean and hateful and vindictive. It was because he was trying to preserve for himself a people that were holy unto him. Okay, So he said, you need to get rid of this. If Israel had been obedient in driving out those nations, they probably wouldn't have fallen into such a devastating cycle of idol worship throughout their history. But they were not. And some, that's true in our lives. I think there's a principle here is if, if we don't take care of business in our life, there are things that will come back up again and again, and they will cause us to live, live less than stellar in the ways of God. And so the big uh, battle that's taking place, the big picture of this is God has promised them the land, and now there's a threat to that, that promise. Israel's been given the promised land, but there's a giant standing in the way. And a few generations earlier, the spies, they came in and they, they uh, looked at the land and they said, uh, we can't take possession of that. Ten of them did, right? The other two were, had eyes of faith. They saw it bigger than that. But what did the other ten say? What's one of the things that they used as a reason? There's giants. We're like ants in their size. There's giants, the sons of uh, Anakim. Okay, There's giants in the land. So now we find ourselves maybe 300 years later, and what is David facing? A giant. This goes back to that original problem. Because somebody didn't take care of it earlier, a 17-year-old boy, I don't know if he's 17, I'm just taking a stab. A teenage boy is going to have to do this in this moment. I think that's really fascinating. So you'll know, though, that when they did come into the land, Joshua... He uh, took care of some of the Anakim, which are the which are giants from Hebron, and uh, also Caleb uh, finally drove out uh, some of the giants from Hebron, and now and now David. Let's take a look at verses one through eleven here, and we'll set the scene a little bit for this. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soco in Judah, and they pitched camp at Ephes and Damim between Soka and Azekah. Sorry, I'm this smaller print than I'm used to. Saul and the Israelites assembled, and they camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up their battle lines between the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp, and his height was six cubits and a span. Uh, He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze uh, weighing 5,000 shekels. I'm going to translate those in just a moment. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was strung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bears were ahead of him and Goliath stood and he shouted, to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? It's a good question, because they're not going to battle, are they? Um, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. And if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Can you see how this is much bigger than a battle between David and Goliath? This is talking about nations becoming subject to one another. It's big. 
It has to do with the grand promises that God has given to his people. When the Philistines said this day, then the Philistines said this day, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other on hearing the Philistines words. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Okay, so we have a, we have a fearful army. Um, Saul's supposed to be their leader. What does it say about Saul? If anybody's the right stature to fight Goliath, who is it? Why? What, do, what does it say about him? Head and shoulders above the rest. He's tall. He's big. He's the, he's the appropriate one for this moment, or he should be. And, and that's typically the way that armies fought, is that the king would be the great warrior, and he was the one that ultimately would go out to fight. But Saul's not going to go out and fight. Nobody else is going to go out to fight. They stand there day after day. It tells us, I think 40 days this happened, that uh, Goliath came out and he yelled. So this battle also, as we'll see, is between the gods of the Philistines and the God of Israel. Notice how this battle has a religious overtone to it. He cries out uh, different things along the way, but uh, we come down later and he defies the God of Israel and he uh, defies God's army. And then he throws he throws down the challenge, and this is called champion warfare. At times, there was individual combat that was used where instead of whole armies fighting, they would just solve the problem like uh, almost like throwing a pair of dice, like one from each army. You put these two guys in, whoever wins, that they win the battle. Champ, champion warfare, and they felt that whoever won represented the will of the gods. Okay, so you see there's a religious element to this too, is that they, there's thinking that goes behind this warfare. Whoever, whichever army wins, it, it's proof in that day that their God is superior. Okay, now I don't know that we can do good theology that way, right? That's uh, it's just based on practical outcomes because sometimes there are reasons why God let his people lose. Not because he wasn't great. He was greater than all their gods, but there was something else that was involved in this. But that was the thinking of the Philistines is, let's, uh, let's go to battle, send out your warrior. We'll roll the dice. We'll send Goliath out. Hardly a fair match for almost any Israelite, right? And uh, you throw out your guy, whoever that is, and we'll see which one the gods choose. That's Goliath's thinking. That's the champion warfare mentality. That's the belief, the logic of such context is grounded, contest is grounded in the belief that battles were decided by the gods or by God, and thus the champion represented the more powerful deity, and he would triumph. And so that's easy for Goliath to say because he's coming out with all of his bluster and all of his impressiveness. And so here's the Goliath problem. I'd like you to think about this for a moment, the Goliath problem. And sometimes we have kind of Goliath-type problems. I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but it's true. There are things that are kind of like this in our life that are not Goliath, but it's, it feels a little bit the same way. Goliath was persistent. It tells us in verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days. Like, he's not going away. This problem is persistent, Okay. And then, not only is he persistent, but he's arrogant. He's mocking toward Israel, towards God's people, towards Saul. He's mocking Saul. Aren't you guys servants of Saul? Well, they're really servants of the Lord if he understood the proper way that Israel worked. But 
He's arrogant. And he bla- he's blasphemous. And he's experienced in warfare. He's been fighting. We hear from Saul when Saul tells David all these encouraging words about what he's getting ready to go fight. <laughs> One of them is Goliath's been fighting since he was a youth. Like, he's experienced. Uh, he doesn't have any encouraging words, really, for David until the very end when he finally concedes and says, all right, go in the strength of the Lord. But Goliath's experienced. He's huge. Okay? Um, they say that his height, when it says that many cubits in a span, is probably nine foot nine. So let's just round it up and call it ten foot for ease. All right? Like, if you're nine foot nine, from where I stand, that's ten feet. You don't have to jump to dunk a basketball you could you could be center for any NBA team in the country and even in Canada, right? So nine foot nine. His armor weighed 125 pounds. Man, I'm telling you, I've carried a backpack with probably 60 pounds of meat on it when I was hiking meat out, and I thought I was going to die. But I know I'm not. I'm not Goliath in my stature here. Okay, this one's the one that's really impressive to me. It's that his spearhead, it doesn't tell us how much his, uh, the shaft of the spear weighed, but it says it was like a weaver's rod. That must be really heavy. Must have been something impressive in their terminology. But the head weighs 15 pounds. Do you know what else weighs 15 pounds? A bowling ball. And when I bowl, I'm lucky to get it, you know what I mean? <laughs> to be able to swing it back far enough to get it going. Can you imagine throwing that overhand? That takes some strength. The, well, I know they've got bigger one, bigger, heavier ball, but that is, that's a lot. And so when he, he's throwing his spear, uh, get out of the way. The concern that David has, though, is, is that God's name was being blasphemed, and he wanted the world to know that there's uh, no God like the God of Israel. And when we face trouble of our own, let's consider there may be something more than, than this, whatever this is, about our own little fight. And I'm not trying to give significance to things that are, are not significant. There are things that are just part of like this fallen world that if we get really crazy about it, we can try to give spiritual significance to. Like if you got a flat tire, I don't know that a demon made you have a flat tire. And, well, I don't want to bring that up, but, but you know what I mean, that there are some things that are just happening. There are things that are spiritual in nature. There are battles that we go through. There are things that we're dealing with in life that have greater significance than that moment. And they're significant to our lives and our families and our church. And it's important that we take up the call during times like that. So let's take a look now at, at David coming into the picture here tells us in verse 12, now David was the son of an, an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem and Judah. Now, we've already been introduced to David a little bit. We talked about him being a worshiper. We talked about him being a man after God's own heart in the last chapter. Uh, he was anointed to be king. And anointing, to me, as I, I understand it in the Bible, is choosing by God, and then also giving the required empowerment to accomplish that choice. So when God anoints, he's placing a choice upon somebody, a king, a prophet, a priest, uh, us, we're anointed. The Bible says in 1 John two twenty, I think it is, and 27, that we have an anointing that abides. 
So the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon us, and it's God's choice of us. As we've chosen Him, He's He's also chosen us, and He rests upon us in a particular way. So it's it's the choosing, but it also comes with a company empowerment to do what He's called us to do. So if you're anointed to teach or to preach or uh, anointed to play music, then that choosing by God comes with an enabling to accomplish that in the way that he wants us to. If we'll surrender to him, right? So this is David. He's got an anointing upon his life, and we saw that in the last chapter. Let's pick up reading uh, in verse 12. I don't think we finished verse 12. Jesse uh, had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. David's dad's very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, and the firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. What does that mean? He went back and forth to Saul. Do you remember? Yeah. He was playing music for Saul because Saul uh, was being tormented by a demon. And so um, David would play music and the spirit would leave and Saul would find some peace for a while. And so I, I think this is what this is referring to. Some, you could think maybe that he's talking about going back and forth to the battle lines, maybe. And that is the context here, but it makes more sense to me at least to think this is having to do with something uh, more detailed. Although there's a question that comes up at the end of the chapter that throws some light on that. And it may reflect more of Saul's self-absorption than it has to do with David's significance. Okay. I'll just tell you. He's going to ask, who is this that killed this giant? And if David's been playing music in his house, he ought to recognize him. But for some reason, he doesn't. Maybe maybe he's asking the question for some kind of emphasis sake. All right, where are we? Verse um, 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now, Jesse said to his son, David, take this ephah of uh, roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They were with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left uh, the flock in the care of a shepherd, and he loaded up and he set out as Jesse had directed, and he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position. So um, just for a sake of geography, if you, you know that uh, Bethlehem is about 15 miles as the bird flies from Gath. Okay, and where they're fighting that battle is about five miles from Gath and ten miles. It's almost right in the middle between Gath and Bethlehem. So we're talking about a ten-mile journey for David uh, to get there, to get where he's going to go. Um, sorry, verse uh, verse 20. What is that? Verse 21. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up the lines facing each other, and David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, and he ran to the battle lines, and he asked his brothers how they were. 
And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance. (laughs) His usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw this man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He, he comes out to defy Israel. The king will give his great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and he uh, and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch this battle. That's really encouraging, isn't it? That uh, This is how I know one of the reasons I know. It's not the only reason. The Bible is true, because that's exactly how older brothers are, right? It's a perfect description of what that uh, what that's like. Um, he, he responds to this, now what have I done? Verse 29, said David, can't I even speak? And then he turned away to someone else who brought up the same matter. And the men answered, uh, the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, uh, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and will fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from his flock, uh, I went after it, and I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, and I struck it and killed it. Your servant has also killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to him, go, the Lord be with you. Um, Ironic because what Saul should have done is gone himself, right? And we don't see that happen. I want to talk a little bit about David's character here and learning from his character. And we'll, we'll carry on with the story in just a moment, but... Um, I'd like you to notice some things about his character. The first thing is that his significance came from his devotion to God. He's got he's devoted to God, and that's where his significance comes from. You might think his significance at this moment is coming from the fact that he's been anointed as king of Israel, but he's really not bringing that up. He's not bringing up his anointing. He's bringing up the fact that he is dedicated and he loves God. He seems not to have let the anointing stand in the way of serving others. You see... Uh, he played uh, in the house of King Saul, but he also continued to serve his father and his brothers as before. And I think there's a powerful lesson in this is that the anointing is not a ticket out of servanthood. Okay, If God chooses you and empowers you, it's not an excuse for us to disconnect from serving others. When David was anointed, do you know what he does? He goes back and he does what he was doing before and he waits on the Lord to bring about the calling that he has on his life. 
He doesn't try to force it. He goes back and he serves and he waits till the right time. He doesn't shortcut. And just jumping ahead in the story a little bit, but when he gets King Saul in the cave and in a vulnerable position, you know, he doesn't strike him down and shortcut to the throne. He says, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. And he refuses to take a shortcut to the throne. He instead goes the long, hard way with God's help and develops character. And sometimes I think that um, if we feel that we're, we're God's favorite or we're anointed by him in some way, that we can take shortcuts and we don't have to go through the work. And David did that. He, he uh, stuck it out and he persisted. He didn't rely upon his anointing for his significance. His significance came from his devotion to God. That's what made him significant. I don't even think he was seeking significance. We never hear in this, I want to make a name for myself. Every concern that he has is about the glory and the name of God, right? He's worried. He's not worried. It's not the right word. He's concerned that, that all of Israel's armies, including Saul, including his brothers, are letting this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God. He's concerned about the glory of God's name. And so David was, when he's called upon to go to the battlefield and this big moment in his life that is one of the things that's going to help define him, at least in the minds of people that have followed him through the ages, is it comes because he's just going about servanthood and being where he's supposed to be as a son. I think that's really significant. I think sometimes we feel we've got to make the way for ourselves. And there's uh, there's times where God asks us to step out and to to go in a direction and to pursue things in life and to go about doing like whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might as the Lord, things like that. Here David is working for his dad. He's continuing in that same humble state, though he's been anointed by God to be king. It doesn't go to his head. He continues to serve. I'd like you to notice that uh, his zeal comes from his love for God. Verse 26 is a response to Goliath, and it says, it says this. Sorry, my verses are a little here. Anybody have verse 26? You want to read it? Go ahead, Josh. Thanks. Once again, this is David's zeal coming from his love for God. I think it's what, it's what propels him into the battle. Um, he, it seems to me as I read this, this is his primary concern is, is not making a na- great name for myself or, you know, I'm anointed, I've got to get out there and get in the scene. It's not any of that. His concern here is for God's, God's glory, God's name. And I think in David's mind, probably he went to Sunday school. I know he didn't go to Sunday school, but I'm, you know, the equivalent, where you're hearing stories about what God has done and what he's promised. And I think the thinking must, his thinking must have been, this really isn't the glory that God's promised to his people. After all, we've got guys like Moses and Joshua and, and others who accomplished great things for God, and here we are cowering on a hillside, drawn up in our battle lines and, and not going anywhere. How can this be? And so he's zealous for the things of God, and we should be zealous 
for the things of God. But we need to have zeal with knowledge. Because I think that's the next thing we see about David is that his confidence comes from his knowledge of and experience with God. He's got knowledge of God and he's got experience with God. Um, And this is where his confidence comes from. There's this opposite picture in the story that you can see of both Saul and his brothers doing one thing, cowering. But David is doing something else. And where does that confidence come from? He's been caring for sheep out in the Judean wilderness. And anytime something comes to attack, he'll go and fight it. Not because he likes to fight bears and lions. And if you think that's so strange for the land of Israel... Uh, there's a lot of literature out there that talks about bears and lions living there in those days. It's not uncommon. They have lions and they have bears during that day. And so David at times killed both of those. And he says, I've done this before, but he says, I've done it with the power that God gave me. The Lord did this. And so uh, his confidence comes from that knowledge and experience with God rather than uh, just his... just believing whatever everybody else is saying about him. And he used wisdom in applying past experience to the present problem. Verse 34 through 37 tells us um, tells us this. It says there in verse 34, um, sorry. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. The lion came and attacked it, and I killed it. And a bear came and attacked it, and I killed it. Verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will also rescue me from uh, the hand of this Philistine. So he's applying his past victory to the problem today. Do you see that? There's some real importance to this. Sometimes I don't think uh, we've always caught on to this. I know I haven't. But uh, have you ever found yourself fighting similar battles and being just as scared in a battle now that you've already won before? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That somehow there's this failure to make the connection from point A to point B. This is just like that. Here's a New Testament equivalent of that. The disciples have just finished feeding, I think it's on this occasion, the 4,000. Remember that? The feeding of the 5,000. There's also feeding of the 4,000. Okay, And they get into a boat... And they're crossing the sea. And you know what the question comes up? Has anybody brought any bread? Like, what are we going to do for food? God, Jesus has just multiplied bread. And now they're in a moment and they're like, what are we going to do for bread? And I think it's a failure in wisdom to appropriate yesterday's victory or the previous victory to this problem. And I think we need to do that in our lives. And I think that's what David did. He's like, I fought the lion and the bear. It's an enemy. It's powerful. It's stronger than me. But God gave me the victory there, and he'll surely do it again in this situation. And it's a way of, we as as humans are, are beings that can relate the past to the present. We can go back, and we have a historical memory of this is what happened back there, and we can come to understanding from it, and we can bring all that to bear on this present moment. And it's one of the things that I think is unique about us as humans is that we can do that in a sentient or a a thinking kind of way. I think animals do that, but it's more reflexive. Um, And I'm not here to argue animal intelligence. I don't want to talk about that. But, But I do think there's something unique about humanity 
that allows us to be able to bring past experiences into this moment. And so David, having fought those battles before, can come with confidence in this moment, knowing that God will deliver him again. And the fourth thing regarding his character is that his uh, determination resisted the naysayers. And this is so important. Because oftentimes if we hear, we might be set on a course, and if we hear a negative word about it, we can often kind of give up on it and be like, well, that's the definitive word. All the pundits have spoken. And I think that that's uh, exactly the opposite of what happens with David here. If you look at who the naysayers are, um, we see that uh, Eliab, for one, is a naysayer. He's like, what are you doing? Do you, do you get the innuendo that's here? David says, what will be done for this person who defeats the Philistine? And his brother says, don't you have a few sheep to be getting back to? He's belittling him. He's saying, You're, this is above your pay grade. You need to go back home. You've got some less important responsibility. Leave this to the big boys, which they're not doing a very good job. But that's the thought there. And he's, he's trying to belittle him and bring him down. And David, if, the King, if you have the King James, it says, is there not a cause? And uh, the NIV says something like, uh, don't I have a right to speak? Can I even speak? He's got something to say, and it's something very important. But nobody really wants to hear it. So Eliab is the first naysayer. And then Saul, in verse 33, you can't, you can't beat him. He's been fighting since he was young. How negative is that? The guy you're going to fight for, in a sense, he's fighting for the Lord, I know, but he's fighting in Saul's army. He doesn't think he can win either. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it, that nobody believes in you. But it doesn't matter because God believes him. And the other naysayer, of course, is Goliath himself. Uh, in verse 42 and following, it says um, there in verse 42, Meanwhile, the Philistines, uh, with the shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. And he looked David over and saw that he was a uh, little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Um, let's pause here for a moment. Some people think that what Goliath saw when he looked out, he couldn't see very well because apparently a malady that accompanies giantism is poor eyesight. And so some think that Goliath couldn't see very well, and when he sees David holding the sling there, uh, he thinks he's holding sticks. But also keep in mind that that doesn't have to be the case because David's also carrying his staff with him. Okay, so you're going to fight me with, a, with your staff? That's the thought. He's taunting him. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. So David was being taunted by them, but he doesn't let uh, that the naysayers or the taunts um, chip away at his determination. He's going to fight this battle for the Lord's sake, regardless of what discouraging words come. And I think at times we need to rest in heavily. We need to always rest heavily in God. And sometimes we need to not listen to other people. Sometimes. And I want to be very careful with that because there is wisdom 
in counsel. But there's times when you know God has called you to do something and other people aren't seeing it with the same eyes of faith. And they may even have wise counsel, but they're not seeing it the way that God has given it to you. And so be very careful with that because once you've said God said, in some ways people have to back off, and that's not always good. You you see what I mean by the balance of that? That if you say God told me this, you're putting yourself on a different level where you're saying this is, that doesn't mean people can't challenge that. But oftentimes, because we believe God speaks today, maybe you have heard from God, and that tells people to back off. But you better be right, otherwise you're using God's name in vain to promote your own agenda. So we want to be careful with that kind of thing. But David, he knows this is the thing that he ought to be doing. Not only does he have the knowledge of God and experience, but there's something else that I didn't mention quite yet. He has a mandate. In fact, all Israel has this mandate from God to take possession of the promised land. That mandate still stands 300 years later. Do you, you see that? So scripture is in his corner. He should go out and fight and win the victory that God has called him to. I'd like you to learn some things or for us to learn some things from his confidence. First, uh, he was confident in his past deliverance as we, we talked about that a little bit, but uh, God had given him past deliverance. He's, he's confident in that. He's confident in his expertise, listen closely, in God's hands. His expertise in God's hands. Okay, That's important that those two things are connected, expertise and in God's hands, because you can't just base it upon your own ability. It has to be the help of God in it. So he's going to give, when um, he goes before Saul, Saul, Saul tries to put his tunic on him, give him all of his armor. David's like, can't fight with these. I don't know how to fight with this. Um, but the Lord knows how to give me victory with the tools that I know. And he could give me victory with those tools, but it's going to be clunky. I'd rather go out trusting the Lord with what I know. And actually, he's more vulnerable that way, wasn't he? He's got no armor to protect him. And so he went out with his sling and his staff. So why did Saul, excuse me, Saul's not doing anything here. Why did David choose five smooth stones? What are the five smooth stones about? I'll tell you what I think in case he missed with the first one. I don't think it means anything else. I think he gathered five. He he knows that God's going to give him the victory, whether it's with one or five. So I don't think the five stones have any significance like these five stones represent the five, you know, whatever. Nope. He had four brothers, but we don't hear anything about them in the battle. So I've heard that before, but we don't hear anything about that till later. So I think personally, and that's fine, we can take that view, but I think personally um, this shows a point that in addition to you trust the Lord, but you prepare. Okay, those two aren't mutually exclusive. It's it's not either or, it's both and. We trust the Lord and we prepare. And God gives the victory. Okay. All right, so five stones. And then he was confident in the name of the Lord. He says, I don't come at you with all of the <laughs> all of the weapons that you have. I come at you in the name of the Lord. And um we can see as he runs into battle, this is verse 50. Actually, no, back up a little bit. David said to him, this is verse 45. David said to the Philistine, 
you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. It's, it's very not New Testament, is it? <laughs> Isn't it? And I will cut off your head. This, uh, this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Okay. That's really important. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But um, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give it all, uh, give all of you into our hands. So notice that verse again. It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. David's presenting a different kind of warfare altogether. And there, there are times later in his life where he does fight, uh, presumably not just with a sling for the rest of his life. He does take up the sword. So he's not against that. But he's saying, that's not my primary confidence. Do you see the difference? My confidence is in the Lord. And this sounds a little bit like when he writes, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But he's saying, I'm trusting in this. I'm trusting in God and not so much our military equipment. It's fine to be prepared and to have great armies and to train and to have military equipment, but that's not our trust. Our trust is in the Lord. That's different. And so he makes that point again and again, and I think this is why it was so egregious when, when David counted the fighting men is because he's actually backing away from his confidence in the Lord alone, and he's taking pride in the army that he's built. So when he numbers the fighting men, it actually seems to me that this is contrary to what he said previously. Some trust in horses and some in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord of God. He's looking at the army and saying, look at how significant and powerful my army is. And that really goes against the message of faith he sent earlier. And so he's confident in the name of the Lord, and he was confident that there's no God like Yahweh. It uses Yahweh Almighty or Lord Almighty there. Uh, Yahweh who is um, all-powerful is the point that's being made there. He's confident in him. So Goliath's coming in the name of his God, uh, supposedly maybe Dagon, although we don't know. Uh, some people think that Goliath's not truly Philistine, that he's some subset, maybe a Rephaim or a descendant of Anak. Uh, Anak, um, there's another group of people which escaped me at the moment. But you would assume that having fought with the Philistines that somehow he's promoting that deity. And so he's coming in that name, but David, no, he's coming in the name of the Lord, and he's fighting that battle. And there's no one like the Lord. Um, the gods of the world are, are simply spirits who were at one time, this is my view, is that one time were created good and turned away, and somehow through demonic deception convinced people to worship them. And there, there, I think, is where a lot of these pictures of what God is like come from, is distortions of, of God's true nature or from worshiping demons, as Paul tells us. Okay. There's, there's no God like Yahweh. And he was confident that God is superior to their technology. Whatever they're bringing, whatever Goliath is bringing, whatever the Philistines have, they have superior technology to all of uh, what Israel may have. 
But these are some of the things that are remarkable about David is that he doesn't let his anointing keep him from serving. He doesn't let the opinions of others shape him. He didn't think so much of himself and concern himself with his own survival and his own well-being. He went to fight um, for the Lord's sake, and he didn't fight in other people's armor. He didn't seem to have concern for himself at all. He didn't go uh, and do something without being prepared. All of these things are things that I think are good examples for us as we fight the battles that God has or the battles that we're going to face, whether they're from uh, battles that God has allowed in our life or whether they're battles that we come upon because we're, we're living in a world that's under a cosmic, uh, in, in a cosmic battle right now. Um, so let's read on and we'll come to the conclusion here. As the Philistine moved closer, this is verse 48. To attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. He's not backing away. He's not retreating. He's not just standing there. He's running towards the battle. That shows some real courage. And reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into the forehead and he fell face forward to the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. David ran and he stood over him and he took hold of the Philistine sword and he drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and they ran. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with the shout, and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn all along. And when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. And Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, and he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out. And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Uh, Saul asked him, and David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Here's the interesting thing about winning the battle is that um, winning the battle for David was the beginning of battles won all across Israel's history. And God's anointing isn't just feeling, it's calling, and it requires empowerment. People saw that uh, that day the David of uh, of the future, the, the future of Israel, because after this, others too are going to slay giants. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, we find out later on in Second Samuel 21, verse 15 through 22, uh, that other giants were slain. Listen to this. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbanab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said that he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue, and he struck the Philistine down and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will we let you go out into battle alone. 
In the course of time, there was another battle, verse 18, with the Philistines at Gob. At that, uh, Sebekai the Hushabite killed Saph and one of the descendants of Rapha in another battle with the Philistines, Gob, uh, El-Hanan's son of Jair. And the Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear and a shaft like a weaver's rod, and still another battle, and still another battle, and still another. I think there's five of them that get killed here. <laughs> and we're not just talking about killing giants. We're talking about a trend that was started because somebody stepped out in faith and did something amazing with God's help. And that opens the way for others to do great things. Do you understand the significance of that? Do you remember, remember, uh, you probably remember a time or have heard of this, that there was a time when people thought that the four-minute mile was an impossibility. And then I think Roger Bannister in England broke the record. And then what started to happen is other people broke the record. I think the first guy in the United States went to University of Kansas Jim Ryan, and he broke the, re- the record, the four-minute mile. And now it's common for people to break the four-minute mile. Somebody forged away. And David was the giant slayer that started to open the way so that others could do the same thing. And this is true of his life in total. When David was done ruling, the Bible says that the Lord had given him victory from all of his enemies on every side in Second Samuel 7. So, Let's uh, look at the intervening period. We're about to wrap up here, but I'd like you to think about this. David is not long after this because he's going to return home, and when he does, the ladies are going to say that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, and this rivalry is going to start to develop. And David's going to have to go on the run for the better part of a decade. He's going to be on the run from King Saul. And during that time, Saul is going to be pursuing David, and David's going to be doing what Saul should be doing and what David, the future king of Israel, should be doing, and that's getting rid of Canaanites out of the land. He's doing that. He's raiding the Negev. He's doing what Joshua started. He's doing what the king of Israel should be doing, even while he's a fugitive. And then it says that he comes into his palace and... 2 Samuel 7, this is right before God gives him the great promise of a house that he's going to build of him, the messianic promise. And it's going to say of him that God gave him rest from his enemies on every side. And do you know what that means? That means for the first time since they entered the promised land, Israel has really taken possession of it. That's what that means. It's that David, David finally, Saul's too consumed fighting his own battles to really take possession of the promised land. David's going to actually do it. And that's because he's a man who is trusting God and fighting God's battles and not just his own. In time, David would come to lead his brothers, even Eliab. Saul, Saul goes after their house, and the brothers come, and they, start, they join the ragged band of um, outcasts that David leads. And so they actually have to fall under his leadership. So it just shows us again that the least among them would lead them. And this this is one thing that God often does, is he takes the humble and the yielded and the weak and the less than powerful, and he raises them up and uses them to do great things. If you think about it, Joseph was Israel's deliverer in Genesis, and he was the young despised brother, wasn't he? 
I like these younger brother stories because I'm one of the younger brothers. <laughs> Joseph was. And I wouldn't shy away from even using the word deliverer because actually when it talks about other deliverers, Jephthah was an example of this. Jephthah was the outcast of the family, and they begged him to come and rescue them, and he did. And oftentimes, Israel's deliverers in the book of Judges, they go by the Hebrew word Mashiach. You heard that before? Messiah. Israel's deliverers are called Messiahs with little m, not big m, little m. Let's keep that in mind. But it means deliverer. That's exactly what they did. We're uh, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood in this same way. Like I said, that that was a not a New Testament passage when he goes and cuts the head off Goliath. Like that's not really the kind of battles that we're fighting in life. We're fighting different kinds of battles, aren't we? Fighting uh, against principalities and powers. We're fighting spiritual battles. We're fighting for goodness. Um, but there are principles about how to deal with battles we fight today, and I think the first one is that we need to have confidence in God that he'll win. We're not, we're not on the losing side. We need to have confidence that if we're fighting not our own battles so much, but if we're fighting God's battles, he will win. Okay, that's one. Number two is that we should do the best that we can to prepare. And one of the ways we need to do that, we need to be prayed up. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to be in fellowship with one another, being strengthened. These are all things that prepare us for the battle. Like, like coming to church is not the culmination of our Christian life. This is part of being all that we can be for God by being encouraged to, and one another. So we do our best to prepare. And then the third thing we do is we fight for God's glory and not our own. I think you'll find this principle in Scripture. People who fight for God and His glory... And you know what I mean by fight. I don't mean in the nastiness, but I mean that you make your pursuit things that will glorify him. He takes care of you. He fights for you. Concern yourself with what God is concerned with, and he'll concern himself with you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll take care of the other things we'd otherwise worry about. I think that's really important. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention. I stole a minute from you. Would you stand with me? Father, tonight I, I know that there are some that may be facing battles right now, and I pray, Lord, that you help them with eyes of faith to look to you and to go forward in strength in the Lord, that you be their help. And I'm praying, God, that we would find ourselves concerned primarily not with self-preservation or making the American dream come true in our lives or um, some other futile or empty pursuit, but we pray that you help us to focus our lives on eternal things and to stand for what matters and to work for what matters and to fight for what matters, to fight the good fight of faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.